How's it going guys? Welcome back to another installment of Reformation South. We're going to dive into this one pretty quickly. There's much to be discussed. I know that this will more than likely be a topic that will have differing opinions, different thoughts, but I'm excited to get into this one. This is really going to get us back into the heart of why we launched Reformation South over a year ago at this point. Um, but the original idea, of course, you know, Reformation South in pursuit of sound doctrine, church unity, and a humble faith. But behind that uh, is this realization that there are areas of our modern church practice uh, much within of what I simply refer to as Bible Belt Christianity. That is what, um, of course, I have grown up in and what I'm most accustomed to. And so when we say Reformation South, we're talking specifically of our own area and how um, reform in many areas of how we do church, how we go through our church practice, our church traditions, whatever that may be, are in need of reform and we don't just mean reform like hey maybe there's a maybe there is a better way out there if we think about it if we put our heads together maybe we can come up with a better way or let's come up with the best strategy let's strategize let's come up with a method um, let's come up with a game plan no when we say reform we are speaking of biblical reform um, so Reformation South when we say that there are things here around us, Bible Belt, Christianity, there, there are areas, um, topics, uh, practices that need to be reformed. We are talking about a biblical reform coming before the word of God uh, in simplicity and just asking God, what have you spoken on these topics, on these issues? How are we to go about church practice? How are we to go about worship? How are we to go about evangelism? How are we to go about study? How are we to go about preaching and teaching, etc., etc.? Um, how are we to structure our families? All of those things are there in scripture. And sadly, it seems that we have, we've, de we've developed, excuse me, so many practices that I guess sometimes you could say they're extra biblical. Uh, other times they're just flat out unbiblical. Um, and I, I don't think that all of these practices necessarily came from malicious intent. Uh, I think that there's probably lots of people who said, hey, we want to help make such and such better. We want to help make improvements. We want to be more effective. And it may have come from a good place, so to speak. Uh, it may have been founded upon good intentions. Nevertheless, what we have now is a lot of poor church practice, uh, church liturgy, poor uh, function within the church. And when I say poor, I just mean not soundly, solidly biblical. Uh, and it does need to be addressed. So this episode is really going to help us dive back into that specific realm and we'll kind of start there and in, in, in the episodes to come there's a few different um, topics that I want to cover in episodes to come there's a few different uh, 
um, avenues that I want to explore. But one thing that will be consistent from here on out is um, we will be really diving in and hitting uh, this issue of areas of reform that that need to happen within our churches, within our communities, within our cities, within um, Bible Belt Christianity. So with that being said, this episode, a couple weeks back, I made a Facebook post um, and a family member actually commented like, hey, you might you may need to do a podcast on that one. I might need some more info on that. And that was, Facebook says that was two weeks ago. So it's taken me long enough. We're here now. But the Facebook post simply said, it should be of great concern to professing believers that many of the popular ways in which we lead people to salvation are absent from the scriptures. So that's setting the stage. Um, It should concern all believers that many of the most popular ways that we lead people to salvation or lead people to Christ, whichever phrase you want to throw in there, are absent from the scriptures. And to go ahead and kind of tease that out and to get your minds going, I want you to think about all of the scripture references that you can think of that mention asking Jesus into your heart. Think about all of the scripture references that you can think of that mention giving your life to Jesus. Think about all of the scripture references you can think of that talk about making um, making Jesus Lord of your life or making Jesus Lord and Savior of your life. And think about all of the scripture references you can think of where someone was led in the sinner's prayer. So go ahead and be thinking about that as we continue on here because that is the very point that I'm making with this one. Many of the popular ways that we use to tell others, well, we we led so-and-so to Christ or we led so-and-so to salvation, um, a lot of it comes down to these practices that they're not in Scripture. You won't find a Scripture reference that talks about anybody asking Jesus into their heart. You won't find a Scripture reference that talks about any, uh, a Scripture reference that talks about anyone um, giving their life to Jesus. Uh, you won't find the sinner's prayer. Now, uh, let me go ahead and address this because some of you might be thinking, well, Caleb, where are you going with this? You know, are those things inherently sinful? Like if somebody says, well, I'll pray this prayer with you or you pray this prayer with me, are they sinning when they do that? Is it, uh, if somebody says that they got saved and the language that they use is, well, when I ask Jesus into my heart, Etc. Etc. Does that mean that they're not really saved? That it was 100% a false conversion? Or if somebody says, "Well, um, when I when I made Jesus Lord of my life, or when I made Him Savior, or, or whatever else," if they're using that language, does that mean that they're definitely not saved and it's not real? No, none of those things are what I'm saying. Um, so to be even more specific. It's what comes after. So we may tell someone, you know, oh, in order to be saved, you you need to ask Jesus into your heart. Or, oh, you want to be saved? Well, say this prayer after me. Um, 
well, in order to be saved, you need to make Jesus Lord of your life. And and then we'll we'll lead them in like a two or three step process, you know, and, and, and that process typically does include some form of the sinner's prayer. And then we'll then we'll turn around and we'll tell that person, because because you did this today, you can know that you're saved. Or because you've done this today, you've been born again. Um, and that, that's the issue to be very clear, to be very specific, to be uh, very explicit. That's the issue that I'm wanting to address. And so, um, is it inherently sinful to lead somebody in a prayer, to tell somebody to give their heart to Jesus or to tell somebody to ask Jesus into their heart or, or whatever? No, it's not inherently sinful to use that lingo. But I do believe very strongly we should stop using that lingo because it's not biblical. But what is certainly wrong and what definitely needs to stop is telling people because you said that prayer or because you've done such and such, you're saved. That is something we need to really take a step back, contemplate, I would say, um, we need to really think carefully about if we're going to continue that practice or not. Now, hear me. I want to. I'm, I'm trying to be as clear as possible. If we tell somebody, well, because you believe today, because you because you have faith in Christ today, you're saved. Well, that's different because scripturally speaking, people are told to believe. People are told to repent and believe. People are told that they're saved by grace through faith. So. That is different than telling someone because you've asked Jesus into your heart, you're saved today, or because you've said this prayer, you're saved today. So I understand that in, in, in trying to explain all that, some of you may already be thinking, I almost, I almost kind of feel like Caleb's splitting hairs with this one, but I beg of you to be patient, hear me out, think about this. Um, if it is splitting hairs, uh, then I would make the argument that these are hairs that need to be split. And we really need to figure out, are we rightly representing the gospel of Jesus Christ to lost souls? Are we rightly representing the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who would already profess faith in Christ? Are we rightly representing God? Because that is imperative. That is something of utmost importance. That is something that we should say, we can't mess that up. We can't afford to tamper with that. We can't afford to miss the mark when it comes to representing God and representing the gospel of Jesus Christ. We shouldn't allow there to be too much wiggle room with that, right? We should, we should want to hit the nail on the proverbial head when it comes to representing God's word and representing the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, Imagine with me, if you will, that you are at what I would refer to as, I'm going to use the word typical, um, a typical church service. We come to the end of the service. You, you, can, you can sense that the musicians have just stood up if you're not at a church where the musicians just stay where they're at, but the musicians have stood up. They're making their way to the platform. Uh, they're making their way to whatever instruments the church u utilizes for their service. 
the the pastor has come to the close of his sermon and he's bringing it to the point where more or less what he's what he's going to say what he's going to do is to paint the picture of you've got a decision to make today um or whatever type of sermon he preached um he'd say you know god god wants you to make a decision today and as we close this service, we're going to give you an opportunity to respond, uh, an opportunity to uh, make a decision based upon whatever work God is doing in your heart today. And so as the musicians come, I'm going to ask everybody to, uh, to bow their heads and close their eyes, every head bowed, every eye closed. And right there, let me go ahead and put a pin in that and let, let's sit on that one for just a second. Every head bowed, every eye closed. You you won't you won't find any biblical support for that practice. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Where did that even come from? Um, nevertheless, we see that practice still today. I can I mean I grew up at a Christian school, and then I went to a Christian college, um, and obviously I've attended a lot of church services in my life, and that was something that it almost became like second hand as soon as we got to the end of the service it was like you know we were already we were already in the process of well i'm about to be asked to bow my head and close my eyes and we would almost like beat it to the punch um because we knew it was coming then it's if you would like to accept christ as your savior today or if you would like to give your life to jesus again whatever um whatever lingo or jargon you want to use it, it was said, if you want to do that today, or if you want to make a decision for Christ today, slip your hand up. And you would typically hear the speaker, whoever he would be, uh, I see that hand. Amen. Are there any others? Are there any others? I see that hand. Praise God for that hand. Praise the Lord for that hand. Are there any others? As the music plays, as the musicians play, no one's looking around. Nobody's looking. Nobody can see you. If you if if you if if you're making a decision for Christ today, if you want to ask Him into your heart today, just slip your hand up into the air. Nobody else is looking. Just slip your. I see that hand. Praise God for another hand. Okay. If you've if you've raised your hand this morning, then what I want you to do is repeat this prayer after me. And what follows is is some version of a sinner's prayer. What we refer to as the sinner's prayer. So it goes something along the lines of, you know, God, I acknowledge my sin today. I acknowledge that I'm a sinner, that I'm guilty, that I stand in need of a savior. I, I believe that Jesus Christ has died upon the cross for my sin. And I want to accept this gift of salvation. I want to ask Jesus into my heart. I want to live my life for you from here on out. And I ask this in Jesus name. Amen. If you prayed that prayer today, then praise God, you have been saved. You are saved. And, and then the service will close out. And, and typically, I'm, I'm really withholding because a lot of times I'll, um, you know, just as I am or another song, I surrender all. But it's so often we'll like, we would repeat verses and, and then sing the whole song again because a lot of times what will happen is whether it's the raising of the hand or whether it's asking people to come forward, whichever one that it is, the speaker will prolong the 
end of service, the altar call. He will prolong that, you know, and wanting more and more people to raise their hand or more and more people to come forward. And I'm not, again, I'm not saying that that's necessarily, it's not a malicious intent, right? Because if we really believe that that's how people get saved is praying that prayer of coming forward and, 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 and whatever else. If, if we believe that that does play a part in people genuinely being saved, then of course we would want more people to participate in that because the more people that participate in it, that means that there's more people that are being saved. So um, that altar call can sometimes be drawn out and drawn out because we're just it's like we're just waiting and waiting and waiting for as many people as possible to respond to what is going on. So again, just by way of reminder, is there anything wrong with leading somebody in a prayer inherently? Is there anything inherently wrong with leading somebody in a prayer? Is there anything inherently wrong with asking people, you know, do, have you made a decision today? Are you thinking about anything today? Do you want to follow Christ today? No, there's nothing inherently wrong with any of that at all the problem becomes the clear problem becomes because you've raised your hand or because you've said that prayer or because you came forward today or whatever it may be listen biblically speaking either someone has been born again they have a believing heart therefore they're saved or they haven't been born again they do not have a believing heart and they're still not saved. That's it. Going through the ritual of saying a prayer or raising a hand or saying, and I don't mean this to sound overly mean or insulting or overly like a jab or anything, but saying the magic words of, I asked Jesus into my heart or I gave my heart to Jesus or I gave my life to Jesus, or I made Jesus Lord of my life, saying those things mean nothing if the person has not been born again and possesses a believing heart. If that person is not one of the believing ones, then all of the hand raising, all of the prayer repetition, all of the the magic phrases mean nothing. So when the pastor or the speaker or the person in turn says, because you have done such and such a thing today, you are saved. No, the the only thing that we could ever tell somebody is based upon your profession of faith, based upon the fact that you are saying that you believe and you have faith in Jesus Christ. That is what saves you. You're saved by grace through faith. That's it. We don't need to, we don't need to add to that. We don't need to tweak that. Um, we don't need to combine that. And, and by combine that, I guess what I'm saying, we don't need to equate that with, oh, well, well they said the sinner's prayer, so that, that has to mean that they have a believing heart. Well, not necessarily. Oh, well, they asked Jesus into their heart, so that has to mean they've truly been born again. Well, not necessarily. There's a lot of false conversions that take place. Think about the parable of the souls. Uh, there's one soul where the seed immediately sprouts up, but later it's snatched up or later it it, it withers. It's taken away with the cares of the world. So there is such a thing as false conversion and we need to be aware of that. So let's look 
Well, first off, what we just went through, there's there's three or four um, really, really common phrases that I want to address specifically. <clears throat> so the first one being, you hear people say, you need to give your heart to Jesus or ask Jesus into your heart. But those are the two really popular ones that um, that have to do with the heart. It's either give your heart to Jesus or ask Jesus into your heart. Then you have, well, you need to give your life to Jesus. Surrender your life to Jesus. Uh, that's another really common. Now that one has to do with life, okay? Then you have the whole um, make Jesus Lord of your life. You need to make him Lord. Um, so that one has to do with, with faith in who Jesus is, the person of Christ, who he is. You need to make him Lord. So those are three of um, the really, really popular ones. Um, so keep that in mind because we're going to look we're going to look at those three uh, in just a moment. But what I want to do before I do that is just look briefly and consider a few things that Scripture actually says about salvation. Because if Scripture doesn't instruct us to ask Jesus into our heart, to make him Lord, to give our lives to him or surrender our lives to him, if, if those things aren't scripturally commanded or taught in Scripture, what does the Bible have to say about salvation? What does the Bible have to say about genuine conversion? So I want to start with John 3. One of the most if not the most famous passage in all of scripture. Well, not just passage, verse, John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now that makes it very plain, right? God sends Christ his son, whoever believes on him. Not, and, 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 and I know that most of our listeners, you know this, just by way of reminder though, this isn't just believing that he exists. Oh, Jesus was a real person. This is believing what he said, who he said he was, believing truly that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus really is the son of God, that he is the Messiah, that he is the only hope of salvation uh, for man, that he is the only mediator between God and man. So whoever believes on him will be saved, will have eternal life, uh, never perish, but have eternal life. Now, earlier in that um, exchange in John 3, um, and I know that we've, I believe, it's been a while, but we've gone through this little passage on an episode before. But we know that Nicodemus goes to Jesus and Jesus says, unless a man is born again, He's not going to see the kingdom of heaven. And there was there was some confusion there on Nicodemus's part. You know, can I enter my mother's womb a second time? But Jesus uses the wind as his example. And, you know, imagine that you're in a church service today and the preacher actually preaches from the pulpit. He says, unless a man is born again, he can never see the kingdom of God. And you think, okay, great. I know this passage of scripture. This is cool. But you're just listening and you're not, prepared for for what comes next because a lot of us were simply not familiar with this with this whole passage 
We know that in this passage, Jesus mentions being born again. We also know that later, Jesus says, whoever believes will not perish, but have eternal life. But there's this often overlooked verse where Jesus uses the wind as an example. So pretend you're in that church service. The preacher is preaching on being born again. And he says, all right, for any of you who's wondering how to be born again, what you need to do to be born again, let me explain something to you. Being born of the spirit, being born again is like the wind. And you may think to yourself, what did I just hear? Did he, did he misread that verse? Did he misquote something from the scripture? But no, that's exactly what Jesus uses with Nicodemus. He says, it's like, it's like the wind. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. So when it comes to being born again, there's not some magic e equation or step-by-step um, -step program or strategy in order to guarantee that someone is truly born again. Meaning that we can't just tell people, if you ask Jesus into your heart, you'll surely be born again. Or if you repeat this prayer after me, you will definitely be born again. We can't, we can't operate with that mindset. And you say, but, but Caleb, we, have to, we don't know that person's heart. So if that person is telling us they believe, then don't we kind of have to take their word for it? Well, yeah, uh, of course. But we need to do that with the understanding that being born again is, is like the wind. We can't control it. We don't control it. So there again, we can't just tell somebody, well, because you have done X, Y, Z, that means you were, you're definitely born again today. That, that's too far. That's playing fast and loose with biblical doctrine. We need to be we need to be careful with that, right? We lead people again. All it simply takes is telling them, "Listen, if you believe, if you believe that, if you've repented of your sins and you believe that, you're saved." It doesn't have to be because you said this prayer, because you've done this, because you've done that, you're saved, or you've definitely been born again. No. We, we don't need to try to operate that way. And that doesn't make the salvation any more secure. Listen, if that person is saved, they're saved. We don't, we don't have to fall for the trap of thinking like, okay, well, if we can get them locked in to where they've done these steps, then they're, then they're like, they're definitely saved. No, just stick with what the scriptures say. Do you believe this? Do you have faith in this? Repent of your sin and believe. Be saved. Save yourself from this crooked and perverse generation. Right? Like we don't have to go further than what the scripture says. We don't have to come up with something different than what the scripture says. And we certainly don't need to start telling people, because you followed our methodology, because you've taken our two or three step process, I can guarantee you, You've been born again. Because then we're actually putting the credit. We're giving the glory to the, the event that occurred or the step that was taken. Like, oh, because you said this prayer, that means you're saved. No, you can't substantiate that from scripture. Or because you asked Jesus into your heart, you're definitely saved. No, we're saved by grace through faith. We don't have to go any further than that. We don't have to twist that. We don't have to mangle that. 
And we should be very careful not to do those things. So I digress. That's John 3. Uh, Also in John 3, in verse 14, he says, Jesus, Jesus speaking, he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So again, just like Moses was uh, lifted up the serpent of the wilderness, son of man must be lifted up. Whoever looks upon him and believes will be saved. Once more, I know I sound like a broken record already. We don't have to add to that. We don't have to twist that. We don't have to repackage that. We just, we need to stick with that. When we're witnessing to a non-believer, we say, here's the truth. Here's the gospel of Jesus Christ. All who believe will be saved. Do you believe? You can, I mean, I don't think it's, I don't think it's a bad thing to just simply ask them, do you believe? Do you repent? You know, if you want to use the word decision, you say, hey, based upon the fact that I've shared the truth with you today, no longer can you claim ignorance. The truth does bring you to a place where you have a decision to make. Will you submit to the authority of God, confess that Jesus is Lord, or will you continue in your rebellion? So that's John, that's John 3. Um, that's a passage that clearly speaks of being born again and, and all who believe will be saved. Think about the day of Pentecost when Peter preaches his great sermon and, and those men are pricked to the heart and they say, what must we do to be saved? And I'm not saying this to be lighthearted or funny. I'm, I'm being sincere when I say this. That would have been the perfect moment that if scripture was gonna teach us to follow the strategies that we follow today, Peter would have said, every man that is here today that wishes to be saved, repeat this prayer after me, but he doesn't. Every man who wishes to be saved today, ask Jesus into your heart. Give your life to Jesus. We don't see any of that, but what does he say? He actually says, repent and be baptized, right? Because we know that baptism is is an important uh, step of faith. Uh, it's It's an outward sign that, hey, I really, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ now. So he says, repent and be baptized, each one of you. And he goes on to say that the promises are for you and your children, for those that are far off, all whom the Lord calls to himself. But you see, repent and be baptized. Again, it's not complicated, if you wanna use that word. It's, <laughs> there's no, there ought not be any confusion about how to speak to the non-believer that has been, that God has drawn to a place, brought to a place where they're hearing the gospel, they're hearing the truth about Jesus Christ, uh, they're hearing the preaching of the cross. All that we need to relay to them, the, the information that we're relaying to them, the information that we're giving them is, this is the truth. What I'm telling you is the truth. Believe and be saved. Stay in your rebellion and be condemned. And, and, and there, just with that being said, I know that we could have a whole other episode on the fact that we really, in today's culture, we really, we really don't like to clearly present the gospel. We present Jesus as like this really, really super nice guy who wants to bless you and wants to hang out with you and just love on you. But we never really mention words like condemned, um, wrath, like the wrath of God. Uh, we don't mention words like repent. We don't mention words like sin, um, at least in a, in, a, in a serious weighty manner that, that sin has separated us from God and that we are by nature children of wrath and that we are going to receive his wrath. 
that he is going to judge sin because he is a just judge and he must punish sin. Uh, we don't really talk about those things in today's uh, society and even in, in a lot of churches today. Nevertheless, that's the simplicity of presenting the gospel. Now, yes, I know that there are places in scripture, you know, Jesus says, come unto me, all you who are uh, weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Um, I understand that he says, you know, I, I am I am living water. Um, all who drink from me will never thirst again. I am the bread of life. I understand that there's uh, those passages of scripture out there and there are those teachings there. But even, even in all of those circumstances, um, take the woman at the well, the well, when he says um, living water, that I can give you living water. He actually addresses that woman's sin. He says, she said, oh, I'm not married. He said, you're right. You've actually had five husbands and the one that you're living with now isn't your husband. Uh, he addresses that when, um, when he says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. He had actually just got done saying, father, I thank you that you have hidden these things um, from the wise and the prudent. You've revealed them to, to babes, uh, so to speak, that you've, that you've revealed them to who you will. And then he says, um, no one knows the father except the son and whoever the son chooses to reveal the father. Come unto me, all you who are weary. So there's a, there's a very strict, like a severe teaching there. I shouldn't say severe. There's a weighty, significant teaching there. Um, at the very same time as Jesus saying, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Uh, when he says, I'm the bread of life. Um, that, that's, in, that's in John 6 where, where Jesus is also teaching plainly that no man can come to me unless the Father draws him. Uh, and he tells them that you've seen the miracles and yet you don't believe. Um, and we actually see a crowd of, of Jesus' followers that they actually turn around and leave because they can't handle the hard sayings, the hard teachings of Jesus. And so we have to look at all of scripture together in, it, in its full context. And when it comes to relaying the message of salvation, when it comes to sharing the gospel, when it comes to talking to people about salvation, the only hope for sinners to be saved is belief, faith in the person and the finished work of Jesus Christ. In its fullness, again, it can't just be, well, I believe that Jesus was a real person. I believe that he taught some good stuff. I believe that he may have actually been who he said. No, that Jesus Christ was truly the son of God. That the purpose that he came was to lay down his life for the sheep, was to lay down his life for the sins of all who would ever believe, all that the father had given him before the foundation of the earth that when he died upon the cross, he actually accomplished that salvation. And that in that moment, if that sinner has come to the conclusion, if God has brought them to the place where that sinner says, when he died upon the cross, he died for even my sins. I believe that my faith is in the finished work of Christ, that I have been made right with God because of Christ and his righteousness and his sacrifice because, because of Christ and the fact that he has conquered sin and death for me, I'm, I'm saved. That's salvation. Not, well, I heard a really good sermon today and, and, and I've been stirred emotionally and so I think I'm gonna pray this prayer today or I think I'm gonna ask Jesus into my heart today. That's not, I won't say in every single circumstance, 
because God can, God can draw a, a, a straight line with a crooked stick and God can certainly work through different processes and, and everything else. But we can't, we can't bank on the fact that just because somebody was stirred emotionally and they said a prayer or whatever else, that that means that they've been saved. Because if they don't actually understand the gospel, if they don't understand who Jesus really is and what he really did accomplish with his earthly ministry and his death upon the cross and, in, and his resurrection, then how can they rightly believe something that they don't even comprehend hardly at all, that they don't understand? So that's why it's so, so important. When we are talking about speaking with unbelievers and then telling that unbeliever, hey, you got saved today. You're not an unbeliever anymore. You're not unsaved anymore. You are saved. You are part of the believers. You are part of the family of God. Folks, on this side of heaven, that it doesn't get more weighty than that, than telling someone, hey, you don't have to fear the wrath of God anymore. You don't have to fear condemnation anymore. We should, this is why I say that we should really, really care about getting this right and not misrepresenting it to lost sinners um, for their sake, but also for the glory of God. God is not glorified when the gospel is misrepresented, when his word is misrepresented, when he himself, when the finished work of his son is misrepresented, God is not glorified. So we should take this very seriously. We should care about these things. So John 3, Acts 2, just a couple of, of places where we see believe, repent and be baptized, believe. Um, the, the passages where Jesus says, come to me, all of those are, the people who come to him are those who believe he really is who he says he is. The people who come to him for living water are those who believe. The woman at the well went back and told the whole town, right? Uh, the passage in John 6 ends with, with Peter saying, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. You are the Christ. And he says, flesh and, he tells Peter, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you. Okay. So now back to our three or four examples. And uh, I don't know if it's just me um, being worried or antsy or it getting late. But I really hope that all of this is tied together and is connected. I hope I didn't ramble to the point that I lost myself in the weeds and all of that. Again, we would love to hear from you <laughs> if you're listening to this podcast. Um, let us hear from you if you've got questions, if you've got disagreements. Um, but I really hope that this is, you know, I pray that this is connected, that it's being beneficial, that it's getting the wheels turning. Um, Mainly, I pray that it's glorifying God, but I hope that it's beneficial and edifying to those who are listening. We would love to hear from you. Again, you can reach out to me anytime, 912-339-4211. You can email us at um, properministries at gmail.com. Um, reach out to us on Facebook, anything like that. Leave a comment. If you haven't followed or actually subscribed to the podcast yet, do that. That does help us keep track of our followers and who's downloading the episodes uh, and stuff like that. So just a quick breather, if for nobody else's sake, for my sake on this one. Um, but now we're going to look back at those three or four most popular phrases that get used. And I want to point out 
My biggest concern with these phrases is obviously that they're not really found in Scripture. But not only that, they actually turn the scriptural teaching on its head. You say, well, well, what do you mean by that, Caleb? Well, in Ezekiel 36, God says that he will remove, our, uh, remove the heart of stone and give a heart of flesh. <coughs> Excuse me. So the significance of that is that when we tell people, well, give your heart to Jesus or uh, yeah, give your heart to God or even ask Jesus into your heart. Well, well the issue isn't that we need to give our heart. The, the issue also isn't that we just need Jesus to come into our heart. The issue is we need a new heart. And God does that. God is the only one who can do that. God is the one who removes our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. So again, not only is that phrase, give your heart to Jesus or ask Jesus into your heart, not only is it not biblical, it actually turns the biblical teaching on its head. We're telling the person, well, you need to do something with your own heart when the biblical teaching is no, what you need is for God to give you a new heart. That, that's the issue. Our heart is um, desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Our heart is a heart of stone. We need God to give us a heart of flesh. So that's, that's what genuine salvation, genuine conversion looks like is you actually get a new heart. So God's not asking us to, to, to give us our heart or to ask him in our heart. God is saying, you need me to give you a new heart. Secondly, Jesus is Lord. I've talked about this one before. Uh, in fact, this one hasn't been too many episodes ago because I remember using this same analogy or example. If let's, let's just say that I grew up with a particular group of friends. We all went off to college at different places. So we kind of got disconnected for a while. And then we all moved to the same town and we start to reassociate ourselves and, 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 and get close again. And one of those people comes to me and says, you know, Caleb, I know I grew up around you and we were friends back in the day, but then we drifted and um, we lost touch. I never talked with you. He said, but I, I, I just really want you to know, Caleb, that that as of today, because because I want a relationship with you, I want a, a meaningful friendship, a close friendship with you. I want us to stay in touch. Uh, I want us to uh, to be there for one another. So I just want you to know, Caleb, I'm making you Caleb Folsom in my life today. Well, I know myself, I would probably have a sarcastic comment for whoever my friend was. But at the end of the day, I would I would probably just look at it and say, what, what do you mean you're making me Caleb? Like whether or not you believe I'm Caleb doesn't matter because the, the fact is I'm Caleb. You can't make me something that I already am. And the reason that I use that example is Jesus is the Lord of everybody's life because Jesus is Lord. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. It's already been done. Matthew 28, read how the gospel of Matthew ends. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Jesus is Lord, period. He doesn't need us to make him something that he already is. Jesus is Lord even over the non-believer. He's still Lord. 
It doesn't matter that the non-believer doesn't, that, that the non-believer may not believe that Jesus even exists, uh, that he never rose from the, from the grave or anything like that. It doesn't matter. All those things are still true and, and all authority still belongs to Jesus. Even if that non-believer says, well, I don't give Jesus the authority over my life. Well, he doesn't need you to give it to him. He already has it. He's Lord. Well, what about the Savior part? Jesus is the only hope of salvation for anybody that has ever lived and will ever live. Jesus is the Savior. He's the only mediator between God and man. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He is the only hope of salvation for anybody out there. And all who turn to him will find him to be a perfect Savior. But he doesn't need us to make him Savior. He already is. So when we tell people, well, make Jesus Lord of your life, make it, that's actually, at the very least, it's misconstruing the biblical teaching, but it's actually, in a way, it's turning the biblical teaching on its head because the biblical teaching is Jesus is already Lord. Do you submit to that? Do you acknowledge his Lordship? Do you acknowledge his authority over you? Not, he needs you to make him Lord of your life. Like that gives the insinuation, you are ultimately in control of your own destiny. You are in control of, of, of everything in your life. And Jesus needs you to make him Lord over your own life. And it's just, that one is just really, really poor uh, theology at the end of the day. It's a really, it's a really poor representation of the person of Jesus Christ, of his power and authority over all things. And then lastly, we'll end with this one. Give your life to Jesus. This is the most um, important one, I guess you would say, because that, I mean, that it, when we talk about salvation, we're being raised from death to life. Uh, we're being born again. So the fact that we would, that we tell people get, Give your life to Jesus. And I understand that the sentiment behind that would be that your earthly faculties, like all of your energies, all of your strength, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Give your life, exhaust your life, spend your life for Jesus. But when we're talking about the moment of salvation, the moment of conversion, we got to understand something. We don't have a life to give. In fact, if you want to use other passages, you know, other passages of scripture, um, we must deny ourselves. We must pick up our cross and follow him. We must die to self. Um, so, and, and there again, I, I understand the sentiment. About, well, that's what we're saying. Give your life, you know, lay down your life, give up your life for Jesus. But we need to be... <laughs> We got to be careful. We got to be extra clear on that one because again, at the moment of conversion, we don't have a life to give. When we're talking about spiritual life, we've got nothing to give Jesus. We don't have anything to offer him. We are dead in our trespasses and sin. Um, we are vile wretches. We don't have anything to offer him whatsoever. He is the one who offers us everything. Life, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, um, an inheritance that the spirit of God seals us until we receive that inheritance. God is the one who, who does everything. Namely, God is the one who raises us, raises us up from death to life. Probably the most, uh, one of the most clear passages of scripture 
on this <clears throat> topic is in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And then of course, John three sixteen, which we have already read. All who believe will not perish, but they will have eternal life. But earlier in John, you must be born again, born of the spirit. And that is something that is like the wind, you know, where it comes from, where it goes. But you know that it's there. So it is with those who are born of the spirit. He gives us eternal life. We are dead in our trespasses and sin. We are children of his wrath. He is the one who raises us up. He is the one who gives us new life, who makes us a new creation. So to tell people, well, you just need to give your life to Jesus. No, you, you need to go to Jesus for eternal life because right now you're dead. You need to be raised up. So it turns the biblical teaching on its head. We don't have a life to give. We are dependent upon him for life and breath and everything. He's the one who gives that to us. So uh, again, I know that there will be differing opinions, differing thoughts on everything that we've discussed tonight. This is not, this certainly isn't me saying, you know, I really, I really hope everybody would just sees that you need to think the way that I think and we need to just get rid of all this stuff. I'm not saying that, that, that I'm never gonna, that, I, that these words are never gonna come out of my mouth again, that I'm never gonna tell somebody that, you know, um, they need to give their life to Jesus or whatever else. All I'm asking for the sake of this episode is please give it some thought. Give it some thought that, when we use phrases and when we use jargon, especially when it comes to the topic of salvation and a lost sinner being born again and being saved by the grace of God, that we ought to be very careful and we ought to be very intentional not to misrepresent the promise of eternal life, not to misrepresent um, the, the gift of salvation. And, and again, it's not just for the sake of the sinner. It's for the glory of God. God is not glorified when we misrepresent him, when we misrepresent, misrepresent his word. Um, so these things matter. Uh, these phrases, you won't find biblical support for them. Not only that, in some cases, these phrases actually turn the biblical teaching on its head. Um, and it, it actually, and what that does, I didn't say this earlier real quick, what that does 
when when we use phrases, let's say somebody somebody is saved and God worked through that circumstance, well, immediately we're starting that person off with bad theology. We're starting that person off with bad doctrine because we're telling them, uh, oh, you gave your heart to Jesus or oh, you did this or oh, you did that and that's why you were born again. So we're, we're immediately launching them out into bad theology, bad doctrine. But, but there again, that's, you know, if God is gracious and God has actually granted new life to that person, um, at the end of the day, the biggest issue with this, okay, these phrases aren't biblical. Not only are they not biblical, they turn the biblical teaching on, the, on its head. And then if, and it's a big if, I know that not everybody does this, but I've been in services where the preacher says it. Um, I myself have been guilty of this uh, years, years ago uh, before my eyes were open to this and God gave me a conviction on these things. But if, if we are telling people, if we are at a church where our pastor tells people and he uses phrases like, because you've raised that hand today, because you've said this prayer today, because you asked Jesus into your heart, because you've done something, because you fill in the blank, you are saved today. That is a very serious problem. And that is unbiblical. That is blatantly uh, misrepresenting the gospel. Um, and that does need to stop. That needs to stop. Saying a prayer, reciting a ritualistic thing, I'm asking Jesus into my heart or whatever, none of that saves anybody. You must be born again. Repent and believe. That's it. You must be born again. Repent and believe. By grace, through faith. We talked about what is biblical. And so to close, you would say, well, Caleb, what are you actually saying? How, how should we address these things? Uh, if you're asking my humble opinion, I would, I wish, <laughs> you know, um, perfect circumstances. I wish that everybody around here would actually agree to say, you know what, for the next year, we're not going to use those phrases. We're going to agree. We're just going to go back to repent and believe, repent and believe, repent and believe. Uh, you must be born again and just use biblical wording, biblical phraseology. Uh, I wish, I wish that there was a, a way to get everyone to agree to do that. Because again, there's nothing inherently sinful with saying some of those things. Um, but it leads to bad practice. It leads to bad form and bad form leads to bad doctrine and bad doctrine leads to more bad doctrine so i do i do wish that that would be that that was possible uh knowing that that's not really possible what i would suggest is again what i've already what i've already asked of you if you're listening to this still please consider these things search the scriptures maybe i'm and i'm saying that not as a challenge i'm saying that in sincerity maybe i've missed something Maybe you want to, to ask me to go read a passage of scripture and say, hey, did you consider this? Again, we would love to hear from you. <coughs> but what do we do? How should we address it? It's simple. Go back to the word. All of us, 
I hope would be able to sincerely pray, God, shape us, mold us, reform us according to your word. Purify us and sanctify us according to your word. Forgive us, cleanse us, and just go back to the word, scripture alone. And then as we do that, when we go back to our churches, whatever churches we attend, if we have pastors or leaders or friends who are in the habit of using these things, gently, lovingly, but but also boldly address it and say, you know, did you know there's not really any biblical precedents for doing it that way, that, that we really can't substantiate leading people in a sinner's prayer or anything like that? Did you, did you know that's not really there? And ju- like I said, gently but boldly encourage your church leaders, even if it is your pastor, to go to the word. Point all our fellow believers back to the word and point non-believers to the word. Point them to the truth, the true gospel the true Christ, the true word of God, uh, and let us be pillars of the truth. So um, that's my two cents on it. Uh, Again, Reformation South, we want to be reformed, but we want that to be a biblical reform um, for God's glory. Uh, So thank you guys so much for listening. Again, I I hope and I pray that all of that was connected, that it it was beneficial uh, in some way, shape, or form. Continue to pray for us as our family continues to grow. Um, and mature and as we're still learning how to balance um, everything just just be in prayer for us Uh, be in prayer for my studies um, and some of the things we have in motion moving forward um, that God would bless that God would uh, allow us to um, not only pursue these things but that he would uh, allow these things to come to fruition because we really do want to see um, God work and glorify himself in the city of Glenville, in Baxley, um, and in the lives of the saints all around us. Uh, And so let us pray that prayer together. So we thank you guys so much. Please let us hear from you. We love you, and we will catch you on the next installment of Reformation South.